0: Okay, hey everyone, uh, welcome to the MP studio. Today we have with us a very special guest. Uh, her name is Fregan Fiasco, and she's um, she was actually until recently working with EPAM Continuum, which is a really, uh, really large company. Um, and she recently left that to pursue her education. And now she's studying in the Kellogg School of Management. Um, you know, she's pursuing an MMM program, uh, which is an MBA along with an MS in design innovation. Um, just to speak a little bit about her before uh, working at EPAM Continuum, she's also worked at Proctor & Gamble for over three years. Uh, she was also with GE Appliances. She's a fellow Duke alum um, and has also undergone one of my really favorite programs on campus, which is the Duke and Silicon Valley program. So lots to talk about. About, but um, I, I think I just wanted to kickstart the conversation, uh, Regan, with just talking about how the transition has been to, you know, sort of like when you graduated from Duke then entering into like a work life and then sort of like transitioning back uh, to education. Uh, how does that feel and what are the pros and cons of that?
1: Sure. Yes. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and get to chat for a little bit today. Um, it's a great question. I think that so far my experience post- Graduating from Duke has involved a lot of transition, um, and each one has come with kind of its own different challenges and different things that are exciting as well. So, I think initially, um, when I left school and started working for PG, I was working with their Gillette brand. Um, and so, I was doing a lot with Razors, and I think that some of the biggest adjustments there were just learning how to apply. Um, some things that we had done through school in a more real life setting. I think that's something that, you know, Duke does a great job of trying to prepare you for it, but it's almost the type of thing, you know, you never really know until you're in the situation. And so I think that t- transitioning to applying the lessons learned and this this hard skills learned um, was definitely the most challenging, but also the most rewarding part of that, of that transition. Um, and then that continued to develop. And I think that I learned over time, you know, that it was really important to not only hone those hard skills, but also hone your soft skills as you progress through your career. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, again, something that like they don't necessarily teach in school, but it's something that's super important um, as you do transition to the real world. Um, And then, yeah, in terms of coming back to school, it's definitely been, I think, even a little bit harder than I expected um, to get back into the swing of things. It's. Is a challenge again in learning my own time management. I think that when you work a corporate job, so much is just decided for you and your schedule is sort of dictated and your deadlines are dictated for you. Um, and now coming back to school, there's so much unstructured time that I think the biggest transition here has been just learning how to manage that and really prioritizing what I want to get out of the experience.
0: That's awesome. That's um and, and such a you know, such a masage of experiences there. Um, but like it's so interesting because I think this this experience of yours can also be extrapolated to a lot of other students who maybe not always you know sort of like transition first into corporate life and then back but like let's say someone who's pursuing law or you know someone who's doing medicine I think for maybe for the med students it's just like you know from one school to the next for like 10 years of your life but maybe someone pursuing law I think it's pretty common that they get some work experience before then going back to law school and then continuing that journey so I just wanted to know um, because I think your portfolio really strongly highlights product design and as you said really translating those skills that you learned in your Duke education to to the real life what was your drive in actually um, maybe just putting a stop to that corporate culture and maybe pan continuum? Because I think, you know, you were having a great time. And then what led to, um, I I just wanted to know, like, what was the source of that that drive that uh, made you shift uh, places?
1: Right, definitely. It is a big decision. And it's one that I feel like I mulled over for a while before I actually made the move to go back to school. Um, But I think for me, it was mostly focused on pivoting roles. Um, So because I have been working in in mechanical engineering and remained pretty technical in my work since undergrad, um, I think that I started through my through my second job, which was at EPAM Continuum. Um, I was in more of a design consulting role. And through that, I started to get a little bit more exposure to different types of work that were outside of traditional engineering. So I got to do a lot more consumer research and interviewing and talking to users. I got to do a lot more strategy work and even a little bit of business modeling for our clients. And I think it was really the exposure to that and the way I felt about that work that was the inspiration for me wanting to come back to school. I think that those were all types of work that I hadn't ever gotten to try out through my undergrad or through my previous work experience. Um, And once I did, I found that I really, really liked them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I also at the same time really liked my engineering work. So I think the the trigger for going back to school was finding a way to combine those two things um, so that I was able to, you know, do the types of work that I felt more gravitated toward, but at the same time still remain very close to a product and something that had a lot of engineering involved in it. Um, And that's also why I chose the specific program that I'm in now. That's
0: awesome. Actually, could you just tell us a little bit about that program? Because it's really interesting because I think you get a technical foundation, but along with that, you also get sort of a business exposure. Exactly,
1: exactly. So it's a super cool program and it's pretty unique to Northwestern's Kellogg School. Um, It's called the Triple M. And as you mentioned at the beginning, it's dual degree. So we get our MBA and then we get our master's in design innovation Um, And the program has actually really evolved over time. So it used to be a little bit more focused on engineering management and business management Mm -hmm. as a hybrid. Um, And now that the world or the corporate environment at least has been shifting a little bit more towards this focus on human-centered design and design innovation just as a whole, um, the program has shifted accordingly. So now it's Mm -hmm. really... um, It is product focused, like a lot of people end up going into product management or something that's very close to product development, Um, but it definitely instills in us not only the principles of like a traditional business degree, but at the same time, the principles of design thinking, human centered design and really being user centric. Um, and that was something that was really important to me throughout my career, and something that I felt like if I could get a degree that valued that in the same way that I value it, it would be right. a good match. And so that's how I landed here. That's awesome.
0: That's awesome. And it seems like you know everything's super streamlined um, for you, and and even your drive is like extremely validated. You know, because now now that you are in this program, you'll, you'll actually have the working knowledge of how the, these things function, and then when you go back to the industry, I think you'll be uh, you know maybe a much better fit, or maybe just have a little more experience and knowledge under your belt um right. that's awesome i hope so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i think that's gonna happen <laughs> so um So I'm really interested in the work that you do. So you're pursuing product design and then, you know, everything to do with human-centered innovation or was it human-centered design? I think I'm not getting the word right. Uh, Human-centered design. Human-centered design, right. And so there's a lot of work that goes around the customer. Um, And, um, you know, there's this hot debate going on right now with with colleges and how uh, for many of these careers, um, you know, how like a college education doesn't necessarily translate into like having the skills having the necessary skills Mm -hmm. to actually Mm -hmm. excel in the industry um not naming not naming the specific careers but i've I've heard of this debate and you know sort of been even even involved in it um bits and pieces but just want to know what your take on this is what do you feel is in the 21st century in the way technology is evolving in the way there is access to a lot of free content out there uh, to a to a college education because many students um and i can frankly say this here that many students even go to a certain university for the prestige or just for the degree? Um, and and so what merit maybe would you provide to the learning side of things? And just, I just want to know your take on this whole debate.
1: Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. And I know that has been kind of a hot topic lately. Um, I personally feel like there is still a lot of value in getting a traditional education if you are able to. Um, I think that there's there's many layers to it beyond just what you're learning is what I found and I think that while to your point and what I've experienced you know the technical skills don't always translate exactly or maybe you end up having to learn additional skills through your job or on you know as you go um I still think that some of the things that I got out of going to a traditional university and now going back to school i'm hoping to get Mm are um you know the the idea of collaborative work i don't think necessarily translates into like self-taught learning um and that's something that like kellogg is very very known for being um putting an emphasis on collaboration and it's also something that that i felt very strongly through both of my jobs um so i think that in and of itself like everyone has been there where they had a group project and they had to struggle through some conflict Mm -hmm. um, or get to know their teammates and really learn how to work together. And I think that is something that you get out of a traditional education that you maybe don't get through some of the other like self-taught means Um, that. And then just, I think, self-growth and self-reflection. I think um, being put in an environment where you're around a lot of peers who are also growing up and facing personal challenges Um, I think there's a lot of growth that comes from that, that is even outside of the classroom.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And I think, uh, yes, yeah, major pros that you pointed out to uh, having a college education and even pursuing that line. And I'm sure that's maybe also one of the like few reasons that uh, even the authorities, you know, they think about it because I'm sure they also know about the alternative means of education that are prevalent nowadays. Um, that's, that's great to hear. Um, actually, I just wanted to segue to um, your experience in the Duke and Silicon Valley class, because I've, I've undergone yeah. that myself, like quite recently. And, um, you know, by far it's been the best pro program uh, that I've undergone, at Duke. But I think before pivoting to that, I wanted to briefly touch upon um, what product design, what what that field entails, what it's all about, because it's super interesting. I think it's to do with like practical, tangible innovation and actually getting stuff done. Um, So I remember, um, and the reason why I cited the Duke and Silicon Valley experience before is I remember in one of the classes, um, Kathy Amato, Professor Kathy Amato, uh, who is was who leading the program for us this year. Um, I think she talked to us about this company, forget this name, but it was really um, up and coming in the valley, um, right around, I think, the early 2000s. And its only job uh, was to, to design innovative products based on the client's needs. It yeah. would do that for everyone from like, you know, a supermarket, uh, you know, for making like innovative trolleys for the customers to, to everything else. And so um, that was so interesting for me that I was like, I just want to know what, um, what this field entails, like what are the challenges that maybe you face and um, yeah, just, just want to know a little bit about it.
1: Definitely. Um, So I think that at least based off of my experience in product design um, I think there's kind of two main parts to the process. Um, I think there's the front end um, and that is exactly what you were just saying. It's, identifying needs, it's talking to users and talking to consumers, it's ideating and brainstorming, and really that's the part where you come up with the idea. You learn where the gap is and what you should be making, Um, and that also often um, entails a lot of prototyping and some early feasibility work. But I think that sort of starts to lead into the second phase, which is what I see as like the actual execution Mm -hmm. um, phase of the product design process. And so I think that one definitely gets to be a little bit more detailed. Um, And so I think what will generally happen is after that initial front end phase, you'll have a clear idea of what you want to make. And maybe you have a mock-up or a prototype or something that is displayed. You've gotten consumer feedback, you feel good about it, and then you start to set specifications around it. Um, And while that can sound really technical, it actually still is very user centered because you have to think about things like if this dimension is too big, how will that affect the user's experience with it or if it's too small? Um, So I think you're setting specifications around, you know, first of all, the consumer experience and what is going to make that better or worse. Um, And also that's when you really start to think about feasibility. So you start to think about specifications that are required for assembly. so if there's two parts that need to come together um, you need to set specifications around how that happens to make sure that it can happen. Um, and so that's where you get a little bit more into you know there's the there's the what you're gonna make and the why you're going to make it and then there's the how and the and the what and so I think those are kind of the two main main parts and I've been lucky enough to get the chance to kind of work in each of those, those parts of the process and sometimes the whole thing end to end. And, um, it definitely takes a lot of, um, input and like patience at each step to get to the right answer.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Actually, even while going through this course, we went through the design cycle. So it was like four stages that I really loved. And also, you know, I think actually translates into when you're building a product that was I think it starts with what is and then it goes to what if, then what wows and then what works. And you just keep iterating in that. And that's um, that's amazing. Thanks a lot for sharing yes, that. That's
1: exactly it. That's exactly right. It.
0: <laughs> um, which and, and I think even before we touch upon that, that experience that both of us share, um I just wanted to briefly talk about, um, I think, this entire idea that companies nowadays are also really actively adopting um and and we've seen it being like a, a like a prominent model or prominent part of the model of let's say um, an amazon or, or maybe an apple where there's excessive focus on the customer right like you have to be obsessed with the customer um and everything is so user-centric then even if like as you said like if this dimension let's let's say maybe i, I think i've, I've recalled um, um anecdotes of steve jobs when he was like at apple when when they just introduced the iPhone and I think he had canceled the shipment of some hundred thousand iPhones because I think that was w- w- one of the other dimensions were not in place or not exactly how he intended it to be um, and so do you merit uh, or maybe do you give a lot of merit to that thought and because you know there's a lot of software engineers and there's a lot of other professions where you don't directly get to interface with the customers. And maybe that's why they don't really understand the importance of this aspect, but just want to know, what do you feel about being obsessed with the customer, especially for someone who's who just had a startup or maybe for like a big company or whatnot?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm all for it. I think that the customer, the user should be at the heart of everything. And I think that, you know, the reason I feel that way is what, what, I think the whole goal of making a product is to make life better or fill a need for someone. And so if that person isn't at the heart of it, um, almost, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Then what is the motivation? Like, I think that the motivation should always be the ways in which it will influence the person who needs it and the person who wants it. Um, And I think there's an layer to that that I've recently been very interested in um, around design for inclusivity. I think that the more that we are, you know to use your term obsessed with the customer and really get to know the customer, the more that we can create products that serve more people and that don't exclude certain groups. Um, and I think if you don't have that obsession or that hunger to learn about the people that you're serving, you will your designs may inherently exclude certain groups. Um, So I think the more focus, I love to see that. I love to see that focus of companies on the customer, on the user, because I think that the more aware we are of that and the more that we bring them into the process, the more that we can make our designs and our products more inclusive.
0: Yeah. And I think inclusivity um, is is so, so important because that's how you scale your customer base, right? I mean, you, you start with a few and you include more and more groups. That's, that's great. Um, since you're actually you know, now pursuing a more technical education for, for that, um, i be really interested. And I think even the people listening to this will be interested to know uh, maybe what the modus operandi of that is. Like, what are some heuristics that you might follow um, in order to become obsessed with the customer? Like, what, what are some of the measures that you take, maybe technical, non technical, that could be useful in actually gauging what the customer's interest is and, and then delivering exactly that?
1: Yes, I think the number one thing is talk to them. I think that's something that we did at EPAM Continuum endlessly and it makes all the difference. We would do interviews and focus groups and go into people's homes or go to a store with them and experience things with them. I think the more direct the contact you're having, the better, um, like not there's no substitute for just talking to someone face-to-face um, and really getting to know them and taking the time to ask you know, not just the relevant questions, but questions that might not seem as relevant, but really get to help you get to know them as a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the number one thing. And then the number two thing, I I guess I would say is, is knowing your audience on a secondary level, I guess. So doing the research into the market, what else is out there? Who are these people um, as best you can, but, you know, going to emphasize the fact that i don't think anything replaces that firsthand that primary primary research that that you do um
0: and especially like talking with them just talking with them you know just getting totally. to know what they want and uh, yeah i think one of my mentors um I, I think this just triggered that thought in my head that uh, he just told me once that um uh, I think to become like a successful or maybe just like an excellent startup founder or just like to create a good product, you don't always have to be smart. You just have to be more observant. And I think if you do that, if you have that change of gears, it really helps. Um, totally. And, and, and I
1: think the other, the other attribute that goes along with that is empathy, right? So developing empathy for those users. Um, and a lot of that comes from talking to them and learning about their experiences.
0: Right um we can i was i was interested to know i think just because you dropped that word how would you how would you define empathy and this is not from like a, a social context but rather a business one so like how would you define consumer empathy maybe uh, would be the right
1: mm-hmm. i think that it's to me it means being able to relate to or understand on a deep level the need that your user is facing Um, and feeling their pain points. So I think that a lot of good products, probably most good products arose from a need or a gap. And to be an empathetic product designer means to really feel the pain of that gap. Um, I don't know that you necessarily need to experience it yourself, but I think that's often how it does happen. You know, you hear these stories of startups and oftentimes it was someone who was a user and had a problem um, and then decided to fix it. So I think that... (laughs) at least being able to put yourself in those shoes and really feeling the need that your users feel.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I think especially the the last point that you mentioned that most of them have even experienced it themselves. I think that's how all these, even like the biggest of the companies have been born. You know, it's not always, um, uh, because I think, the trick to empathy is that sometimes it becomes t- tough. There's like a fine line between sympathy and empathy. You know, you might just mm-hmm. pity the customer as opposed to being with them and actually being in their shoes. And I think I think the most clear way to do that is just experiencing it yourself. Um, totally. All, and I these, think that ties back like, to
1: like a, one way to do research is experiencing it with them. You know, how I said we would sometimes go shop with the consumer, or eat with the consumer or whatever the product was, was going to be used for to really experience that with them, because that's exactly your point is great. It's not just sympathy, but it's empathy. And it's really being being there with them in that experience
0: right that's so true um and yeah thanks a lot for sharing that as well um so so now yeah i want to talk about your experience in in duke and silicon valley and for for all those donors, so i think regan um i don't know exactly when you did it but uh, i think you've done this you've underwent this program and and so have i i did it this summer uh, as part of duke university and it's it's a fantastic program i did it remotely i think you did it in person you actually mm-hmm. went there um and so just wanted to know what your experience was like what all you did in uh um, maybe yeah just a word to two about that
1: it was a really great experience when i did it so we were i believe we were the, the second class to have done it it was in 2014 wow. um so it was just in the infancy of the program and i'm sure it's evolved a lot since then i'm actually right. would be curious about your guys experience as well but uh, we did we got to go to the silicon valley we lived there for the duration of one summer um and we took a class so the class was I mean, far and above the highlight of the experience. Um, It was taught by Matt Christensen, who's an expert in disruptive innovation um, and a well-known professor at Harvard Business School. Um, And so the class was adapted and we read a lot of case studies. um, And I would say that was really the first time I got introduced to even like the word of innovation and the world of it. Um, And then the class that we took was well complemented because we were able to go and do a lot of visits to the companies in the Silicon Valley. And we visited companies, you know, as big as Apple and Google and then small startups too. And we kind of went um, oftentimes where there were Duke alums who were kind enough to show us around and talk about their experience as well. Um, And I think that the whole experience just made me really enamored by that world, by Silicon Valley, but also just by the world of innovation as a whole. Um, And it really like, When you're out there, I felt like you could really feel the excitement and feel that um, drive to want to create new things and to want to invent things. And I think that was really inspiring for me.
0: That's awesome. Uh yeah, even when I, I underwent it, and unfortunately, um, you know, because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to go to the valley. But it was it was, you know, nothing short of a spe- uh, it was like wonderful because even when I underwent it, um, you know, going into the program, I had such high bars set because all my upperclassmen friends were like, Hey, you know, you have to be in the valley to actually experience mm-hmm. um the splendor of it. But then when I, I did it remotely, so going into the class, you know, I was a little apprehensive of how it would turn out but it was so amazing because all these people like dropped in on calls and they were so casual and you know informal with us and at the same time they spoke so highly about innovation and about the bubble that that silicon valley is mm-hmm. um and it truly is i mean i've, I've, I've visited the valley and i've been to uh, headquarters of all these companies um what do you think like what are your thoughts on maybe the fact that silicon valley is a bubble a bubble of innovation maybe entrepreneurship and change like being there what what was that like is that something is there something different in the air like what <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a great question and if we can figure that out we might that might be the real key um
0: <laughs> I know. it did it
1: didn't feel different it just really felt like and i think that it's not so much the place right but the people who fill it i think Everyone we talked to was so excited. They yeah. could have talked. Any anyone we talked to could have talked for hours about what they were doing. And I think that's just indicative of the fact that people go there because they have an idea and because they have a passion and want to to do something about it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's that energy and that drive that really makes it stand out. I think that you know it's not that that doesn't exist elsewhere, but I don't know that it exists in such an overwhelming majority as it does there Um, and to some degree that might be a self-fulfilling prophecy right like it has that Mm -hmm. reputation and so now people who are of that spirit tend to go there yeah um, so it becomes saturated
0: it could be exactly
1: exactly but but regardless of that I think it does have a very distinctive vibe and you can you can feel it in the atmosphere I think even more so than other cities that I've been in
0: that's awesome yeah Um, I think that's that's so true with the valley and uh, yeah, I think the one fact that I took from uh, from that is that anyone in the Valley, you know, is working at a company who has founded a company, I think they can talk for hours about what they've done, you know, and, mm-hmm. and what their products do. Um, yeah, that, that's so true. And I think that's also what makes it different from some other companies where people just do things for the sake of it. I think every single person who's in the Valley is there because they love it. And it's because um, they're truly passionate about what they want to do and the change they want to make, create or, you know, make. Yeah. Um, really? Yeah, um, I, I think you mentioned disruptive innovation when you're talking about the professor um, and how I think he's at HBS. I also did an uh, I did a book review recently um, on on this book. It's called The Innovator's Dilemma um, mm-hmm. by Clayton. That was Persimson. the book we
1: studied. That was kind right. of the heart of it. Mm-hmm. That's
0: awesome. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, I had lots to learn, but I just wanted to know what you feel about disruptive innovation and maybe if you could just share a few thoughts and what do you think it is first, and then maybe like what what the industry is looking like now with with a lot of emerging technologies coming in place.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a super interesting space. I think that, you know, the, the heart of disruptive innovation or what it means to me is that there's, there's a lot of these big incumbents, as they call them, big well-established companies that have been doing the same thing forever. And I'll just use Gillette as an example, because it's something that was, you know, part of my history, but, you know, Gillette has been around for years and years Mm there known as the, you know, most common razor brand and they make a great product. And I think that's, that's a key distinction with a lot of incumbents is they know how to do what they do. They do it well. And they like have a lot of expertise, Um, but I think the reputation with incumbents is that oftentimes they get stagnant and so they aren't necessarily looking to do the next big thing. They're just looking to continue doing what they've been doing and what they know how to right. do. Um, and that's when you know an industry is ripe for disruptive innovation. So a smaller upstart or a smaller company could come and do something very different um, or do something cheaper or faster or in some way better for Mm -hmm. the, for the user. And I think that an example of that in the razor industry is um, like a Harry's or a dollar shave club that came in and, you know, the ways that they did things differently were, you know, they competed both on price, but also on distribution channels. So they went DTC versus selling through, through retailers. Um, And so I think through that example, it's really illustrative of how, if an incumbent just continues to, you know, Maintain the way that they've been doing something, they may miss an opportunity to sell something a different way or make something a different way, um, or even make a new thing. And then if somebody else comes and does that, they're able to steal customers away from the incumbent. And if they do it successfully enough, um, you know, they, they win, quote unquote. (laughs) When <laughs> that's
0: so true yeah and i think that's that's also um there's just like i mean there was just forming links in my head I, I was watching this video um i think the founder of y combinator which is like you know the world's largest startup accelerator and uh, the video titled how to start a startup you know great recommendation for whoever's you know wanting to create something of their own and i think he he mentioned something really prolific in, in this sense like in this spirit he said that um, you know, people who do want to start a startup is um, they always come in with a clean slate, right? Um, they don't have anything to lose. And at the same time, they have everything to gain if their product goes right. Um, and so, I mean, he was just using this as a way to encourage disruptive innovation, the spirit of it uh, within emerging entrepreneurs. Um, yeah. The the line is so fine. I mean, you know, it's, it's such a trap because if you're an incumbent, right, uh, on one hand, you have to sort of you know, quote unquote, please the stakeholders, you have to work mm-hmm. for them, you're technically their servants. Um, and so, you know, they're used to your products. So in the case of Gillette, maybe like even, you know, I use the razor and I think so does my dad and so so maybe does his dad. Um, and so what, when do you know that it's time to break this cycle? Because um, and if I to just finish this, because I again, re, re, you know, recall, I think Steve Jobs said this once that you know, the customer doesn't know what he or she wants until you show it to them. And so, you know, as an incumbent, you could, you know, always persistently just like, you know, keep on expanding your market share. But at the same time, you know, you could be the one who chooses that, hey, now is the time to break out of it and to enter into something new. It's just when and like, what's the right time to do that? Like, what do you think about that?
1: Mm hmm. I think you make a good point. It is, it feels like a trap sometimes. Like, do you, do you sacrifice resources from what you're doing consistently to do something new? And, you know, how do you know if that will be worth it? I think these are all really tough questions that the leaders of the companies definitely struggle with. Um, And I think that while you're right, a customer can't tell you what they want. I think that they can tell you, what they like or don't like. And I think that's where the next idea is going to lie. So I think, you know, they're not going to tell you we want us we wanted an iPhone, but they might tell you that they're dissatisfied with their current means of communicating or they're dissatisfied with their um, current cell phone for X, Y, Z reasons. And that's your nugget. That's what you go and run with because they might not, yeah, they might not know what that next thing is, but they know what's causing them frustration. They know what they, what need they need to fill, you know, what job is to be done. And that, that's what I think you need to listen to.
0: Yeah. That's so nice because, uh, that's what makes me figure that, you know, that's the job of entrepreneurs. It's to create that bridge because, uh, and that would connect sort of like the pain points of customers with the potential solution. And they just walk over that bridge and, you know, they, they go from problem to solution. Um, exactly, yeah. Uh, and, and that's, uh, that's amazing. And, and also the fact that, you know, it it's so important that custom and also it's a delusion, but you know, it's it's so important to understand the difference because customers always give you direction to move into they might not point you specifically to the product but they'll always give you direction to move into and then it's up to you what to make of it like uh, exactly. I remember with apple i think when you're talking about the iphone it's it's having the internet in your pocket so that was maybe the, the insight or the insight, and that's what led to the product being formed and um yeah that, that sort of like reinstates my belief in the fact that you know we can do whatever we want it's just we have to have the um, you know, we just have to know what direction our customers are pointing us towards. Um, that's amazing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I think you're talking about disruptive innovation about product design. Um, where do, or, or maybe I think here's a better thought. Like what, what essential skills do you think will be important going forward Um, I'm not talking only about the technical skills that, hey, you know, you need to learn this programming language if you're in technology or, you know, do this, but what maybe soft skills would be super important according to you? Because I think product design is a really wholesome experience that you get, you know, get to work with teams, with customers, with the actual product. And so, you know, because you know the ins and outs of all parts of the journey, what what are your thoughts on this?
1: That's a great question. I think that you know, a big one which we we already touched on, so I won't go into it, but is is the empathy piece, and I think being able to really learn from and understand your users is is a huge part of it. Um, right. But then the there's this this framework that I learned through um, Design for America, actually, which was a group that I participated in while I was at Duke, um, right. and they taught us that there's this three circle Venn diagram and to design a good product for consumers, you want to sit at the intersection of it. Um, And so the three bubbles are desirability. And so that speaks to empathy. That's learning to understand what your consumer desires um, and what is desirable. Um, And then the second one is feasibility. And I think that's where my technical skills have come into play, you know, understanding what can we make from an engineering standpoint. Um, And then the third bubble is viability. Um, And so that is, is on top of, you know, do they want it and can we make it, will it be profitable? Will it make money? Mm -hmm. Um, is Should we do it from a business standpoint? Um, And so I think, you know, for me personally, that's a big reason that I'm back at business school is to learn that viability piece, because that's something I haven't, I haven't had exposure to yet. Um, And so I think, you know, speaking to future aspiring product designers, I think it's those three components. And, It's not that you have to be an expert at all of them by any means, because you'll have teammates, Um, but having an understanding of those three things and how they intersect and come together is how you're going to land at the right solution.
0: That's fascinating. Um, Empathy, feasibility, and viability. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think that also translates to so many other fields. I mean, you know, you can form links all the time, like even... Um, I think I, you're talking about like just like proper professions with like let's say considering law. You know when you you're fighting a case for a client or maybe you know you're working as as a quality assurance you know um, specialist in a company or whatever. So I think this this can these this ram rate can translate into a lot of industries. Um, that's that's amazing. I think before we part, um, any any word of advice, suggestion, um, you know, um, any any parting words to not maybe just not aspiring product designers, but people who want to um, sort of like return to pursue, edu- you know, any form of education and like break off from the corporate, from the corporate shackles and then maybe like go back in uh, because, you know, you're someone who has done that. And so I think just leading off of the, the entire idea of empathy, like you've gone through that experience. Uh, what would you say to uh, people in the future? I mean, who would uh, want to go through that?
1: Right. I think that, I mean, a big thing is just knowing when it feels right to you, and I think that you will know. I think that um, if you feel like there is something that you enjoy doing a lot more than you enjoy doing your job, you should go out and do it. And if that requires extra schooling to to train yourself um, or to learn new things, I think that that can really be the right decision. Um, I also think there's something to be said about just letting yourself get off the hamster wheel for a few years. I don't right. think that's the only reason one should go back to school by any means. But um, I think when I was making the decision, it definitely felt overwhelming to make such a big change and to take two years out of the workforce. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, speaking to the students out there, like we're all very young and you have a very long career ahead of you. And don't be afraid to to hop off the hamster wheel for a few years if it's going to help you get to where you want to go.
0: Right. That's, uh, that's so amazing. So don't, don't be afraid to hop off the hamster wheel and because and, I think, you know, again, you don't have anything to lose at this point um, yeah. and, and everything to gain and education is never a wrong investment. So, uh, you know, go, go and pursue that, go and pursue all your dreams and stay tuned for the next episode of the NP Studio. Thanks a lot, Regan. Uh, Thank pleasure you. pleasure having you. Thank you.